The dead don't need healing. They're dead. The dead is, death is the great healing, but we need healing. Those who are most equipped to help us with that are the dead. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I'm Amber Magnolia Hill. This is episode 107. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Perdita Finn. I must say this is absolutely one of my favorite interviews I've ever done for this podcast, and I'm so excited to put it out there and introduce others to Perdita's heart and work. Perdita Finn is the co-founder with her husband, Clark Strand, of the Feral Fellowship, The Way of the Rose, which inspired her book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. They are currently at work on their next book together, Circles Not Lines, Spiritual Community Beyond Patriarchy. To find out more about her devotion to ecology, not theology, visit wayoftherose.org. In addition to extensive study with Zen masters, priests, spirit workers, and healers, she apprenticed with the psychic Susan Saxman, with whom she wrote The Reluctant Psychic. Perdita Finn now teaches popular workshops on getting to know the dead. Participants are empowered to activate the miracles in their own lives with the help of their ancestors and recover their own intuitive magic. Her book, Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World, is an intimate journey through her recovery of these lost ways. She speaks widely on how to collaborate with those on the other side, on the urgent necessity of a new romantic animism, and on the sobriety that emerges when we claim the long story of our souls. Her next book is The Body of My Mother. She lives with her family in the moss-filled shadows of the Catskill Mountains. There are two bonuses over at patreon.com slash medicine stories to go along with this episode. One is open to everyone, not just patrons, and that is, as you know I love to do, a giveaway of Perdita's book, Take Back the Magic, which is one of mm, the most meaningful and impactful books I've ever read. So that will be going until January 1st. I will randomly choose a winner on January 1st. Until then, head over to the Medicine Stories Patreon and leave a comment on this post, which will be open to everyone. The second Patreon bonus that will be for patrons at the $5 and above level is a coupon code for Perdita's upcoming course, Ancestral Collaborations, Soul Seen and Heart Known by the Dead. This will happen on four Wednesdays in January, starting on January 10th. Together, we will explore both traditional and creative ways to summon the dead honor their presence, receive their messages and guidance, and nurture beneficial relationships of healing and empowerment. The coupon code is for just about half off. That is there at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Perdita also has other ongoing courses coming up in 2024. All right, we're going to get into it. I, I have very personal and emotional connection to this work, this book, this woman and her family. Um, but that is all thoroughly 
discussed in the interview and it's a long one. We just, we just kept talking and I, I did not expect it to end up where it did, but I just hope that you love, love this interview as much as I did and that this work touches you as much as it has me and some friends of mine and connects you back into relationship with those who have gone before you, those who we so easily dismiss in this culture as, well, they're, they're just gone. You know, this flat, non-animistic, overly rational scientism worshiping, if I can't see it, it's not real culture, disconnects us from one of the most ancient ways of being that there is for humans, which is to be in relationship with the dead. So without further ado, here is my interview with Perdita Finn. Okay, Perdita, hello. I'm already emotional from the three minutes we just spent talking before we recorded. I knew this was going to be a heart open space to be with you. And I want to start the same way I started when I interviewed your daughter two podcasts ago, episode 105, which is just expressing my gushing admiration for your family and such gratitude for the books you, your husband and your daughter, Sophie Strand have written. And just, I, you know, when you see someone in the world, as I've seen Sophie and you're like, wow, I admire this person. Who are their parents? And they're like, oh, their parents are, (laughs) they've actually written these incredible books and do all this work in the world. I just, I'm going to be a blubbering mess this whole interview, but thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you've brought into my life. Well, I have to say, you know, I said this to you before we began, but I need to say it publicly. We wouldn't be here without you. You know, at a moment when the world felt really helpless and we felt like we'd come to the end of the road of so much of the Western medical possibilities, you appeared and you appeared to to help us all as a family reroute back in the earth, which is where we've always felt safest. And so you've offered to our daughter real healing and grounded wisdom. And, you know, that's meant the space for us to do the writing we've done. So, you know, none of these things are separate from each other and none of us are separate from each other. Yes. As your recent book, Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World, really so beautifully, thoroughly explores. So I started reading this book a few days before my father died. This was two weeks ago. Oh, God. it was. So I actually didn't know what it was about. I'm curious if your publishers did not want the words the dead in the title, or if you didn't have those words in there at first, or okay. that's really what it's about, you know? Do you, do you want to know the backstory? I, yes. The original subtitle was getting to know the dead. Yeah. And for me, the dead aren't scary. The dead are the dirt. Yeah. And the dirt isn't scary and the dirt isn't dirty. It's fertile and alive and it's the womb of the earth. And so I'm not scared of the dead. But my publisher, yeah, <laughs> was, <laughs> I get it. I like the title. I like the subtitle they gave me very much, and it's it's a, it's a wonderful subtitle. And so I'm grateful <laughs> for that. But yes, and they even took out a lot of my use of the word "the dead" in the book. Mm-hmm. 
I use rather than ancestors because I'm not just talking about biological relatives or human connections. For me, the dead is every plant and tree and animal and soul on this alive and fertile planet. So thank you for noticing. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I, I understand that a lot of people will be turned off by the word dead and the phrase the dead, but I, I really appreciated how you use that in the book and how you, like you said, differentiated it from ancestors because, you know, we have, although there are so many, we do have a finite number of ancestors. Any person in our lineage that the word parents is a part of parents, grandparents, great grandparents, great great, but then there's all the aunties and uncles and there's all the people whose work has sustained us and the friends and like you said, animals, plants, stones, you know, really can expand that idea so much farther. You know, not to give too much away, but the book is about realizing the stones are our mothers, you know, literally, not as a metaphor. Right. (laughs) Um, So something that really just when my like real life experience is lining up so much with what you're writing about in this book, I was really taken aback. So I'm going to share as briefly as I can, um, something that feels relevant to one of my favorite concepts in your book, which is that, you know, I had a really difficult relationship with my father, really complicated. I would say he was, he's the most complex person in my life. It was the most complicated relationship I've ever had with anyone. He was an alcoholic, but he was also extremely loving and beautiful and ancestral story keeper of his lineage. And I knew both of his parents and three of his grandparents when I was a child. So I just feel very in resonance with that whole lineage and with him. I'm just a lot like him. I look like him, etc. But the 30 years of alcoholism were so difficult. And in the last few weeks of his life, as my sister and I were making arrangements, we're going to bury some of his ashes in the ancestral plot with his grandparents. And she wants some of them too. And I was like, I don't want any. We had put my mom's ashes in my garden earlier this year, even though she's been gone for eight years now. But I was like, no, like my mom's ashes, they feel like a blessing, but dad's ashes. No, I, you know, I don't want those in my garden, in my space where I'm going to be growing plants and herbs and food. And I remember driving home the day before he died, really feeling very convicted about that. You know, like, no, that man's ashes nowhere near my garden. And then he passed the next morning And within like 24 hours, I was like, oh, I totally want his ashes in my garden. Like he was, he was so much more than those difficulties. His, I could see like the bigger picture of his soul. You call it the long story of the soul, like immediately upon his passing. He was not just this man trapped in this body with this addiction that was very ancestral for him as well. Father and his father and his father and his father were all alcoholics. (laughs) But I could, I could just see like the big picture of who of who he was beyond that, and it was like an immediate immediately the relationship changed upon death, and I didn't know that could happen. And it's only been a couple of weeks, right? Yes, and the, but that happened. Yes, but that happened immediately, and the last couple of weeks, I'm just I'm almost in like an ecstatic state of communion with him. Well, he's been released too. Oh, you know, yeah. Sometimes people want to know what we need to do for the dead. And I always say, well, nothing. They're dead. <laughs> you know, The hard work is living. Uh-huh. And being dead is pretty easy. And it's such a release, right? And suddenly all of that junk falls away. 
Yes. And it's like, I don't know, it's interesting because there are so many theories and schools of thought out there that like you, ha- yeah, you have to perform these incredibly elaborate rituals or, you know, what if you had a bad relationship with the dead, then like, clearly you're going to have a bad relationship with them beyond the grave as well. But you really simplified. And I just feel in my lived experience, much more aligned with what you write about in that book, that like, it's actually not complicated and that who they are in death is so much bigger than who they were in life. You know, I mean, one of the things I write about in my book is where this fear of the dead comes from and how this sense of keeping us busy with, you know, protective rituals in our relationship to them is a way of actually creating distance for us from the dead and a kind of burdensome responsibility. Like I have to heal all of my ancestors, you know, the 10 million alcoholics I've got on my father's side of the family, which I do, you know, I have to heal them all. The dead don't need healing. They're dead. The dead is, death is the great healing, but we need healing. Those who are most equipped to help us with that are the dead. And I'm sort of interested in the ways that religious authorities and institutional authorities have kept people from what used to be very straightforward relationships. Yeah, well, allow me to quote you (laughs) something down here that I I think I, I was so touched by this. Okay, in everyday life, we fear being mocked behind our backs when we share our supernatural encounters. The dead and the living who have acknowledged them were silenced so that all of nature could be managed and controlled. You are imagining that. That was a coincidence. You are out of your mind. Organized religions have all privileged voices from on high over the legions of messages from below. Silencing of the dead is the same thing as the silencing of the trees, the plants, the stones, the earth, so that we can manipulate it. You know, it's like when they perform experiments on animals, the first thing they do is rip out their vocal cords, you know, because we don't want to hear what the dead have to say to us. I mean, you know all this and the plants. The good news is they're dying to talk to us. The dead are dying to talk to us. Yes, yes. And when when you say, you know, it's the same as silencing the earth, like we, we mean this literally, that the dead are the earth. The earth is made up of the dead. This is not a metaphor. Nope. Thank you for, yeah. <laughs> you know, I often tell people, Wherever you are, I don't care if you're in a city, I don't care if you're in a condo complex, go out and scrape up some dirt in your hand and just hold that dirt in your fingers. Just, you know, the dirt near the parking lot, if it is, I don't care where it is. It doesn't have to be fancy dirt. You're holding right there, wherever you are, the bodies of the dead, dead weeds, dead trees, dead insects, dead beings, the excrement that comes from the dead bodies that were eaten by other animals the pulverized stone that comes from the bodies of sea creatures 350 million years ago, we literally stand atop the bodies of the dead. We grow from the bodies of the dead. I've called it elemental interbeing before on this podcast, the constant recycling of elements between bodies. You know, as like as many times as I hear that, you know, every bite we eat has death in it. And this is true for vegans too. Exactly. <laughs> plants are living and so many animals are killed in these huge monocultures of the common plants that most modern vegetarians and vegans eat. I it, That concept just 
really like deeply embedded into my cells reading your book. And every meal I've eaten since then, I'm so aware that I, I am I'm taking in the bodies of dead beings in order to live. Who also remember that we've all been each other's mothers. <laughs> you know, you were talking about that experience of knowing you were a mother, even as a small child, and always identifying with the mother. Mm-hmm. But that's the knowledge of the plants, of the animals. And in the Jataka tales in Buddhism, there are all these stories of the Buddha sacrificing himself as an animal, incarnate as an animal, to feed people who are hungry, as a rabbit or a deer, or, you know. But I think for our ancient ancestors, that was a, a ubiquitous experience. They called themselves the salmon people or the bear people or the reindeer people because they knew that their grandmother died and was reborn as the deer who was going to feed them or reborn as the salmon who was going to feed them or the bear. And so when you take that Christian saying, we hear, you know, take, eat, this is my body, that Jesus says he's not making some singular pronouncement about his godhead he's just saying what the entire earth is saying take eat this is my body because the earth remembers we're each other's mothers i'm happy to feed you take eat this is my body right and that's what the plants will say to us it and we if we know that when we're sitting down to eat and we're sitting down to eat a banquet of our mothers who have given their bodies for us And that we will someday, hopefully, give our bodies back in that way. I, I'm assuming, well, I, I know from the book, actually, that you are aware of <laughs> issues in modern American burial. Um, oh, I'm fascinated by them. And yeah. in fact, you know, I would love more than anything. I remember when St. Francis was dying, he begged his monks to take him out naked and lay him on the ground. Mm-hmm. Of course, he wanted to, be, he wanted to feed the animals he loved. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me what I want to take me out in the woods and it's a party, right? Yeah. Have a party. I let, you know, the vultures and the coyotes and the mice and the beetles come and eat my children. I mean, that would be my, I once had a deer die in my backyard. I love that story. And three days later, every bone of her, was gone. every hair of her was gone. I've seen that too. I used to walk in this wild place, but it was right next to a freeway. And I was always the only person there. And um, there was a fresh deer carcass one day, you know, it was on the side of the road, I could tell it had just been hit. And two or three days later, the only thing left was the spinal column. Wow. There's this beautiful book. I was thinking of it. I, I got it off my bookshelf. I was like, I wonder if Perdita knows about this book. I think it's called Life Everlasting. <laughs> By yeah. Burnt. Yes, I yes. read it. Many times, it's one yeah. of my favorite books. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love it. You know what I love? And that book begins with this mouse dying, right? Like the tragedy of the mouse death. And then these beetles come and they go, oh my gosh, we found a mouse. And they, the beetles get up and do their little dance on top of the mouse, like, <laughs> be down. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, they dance and fuck (laughs) and then they lay their eggs inside of their mouse carcass who will eat and come out i mean womb and tumor one 
Mm, woman tumor one. And there, I mean, it's just, it's endless, this recycling, this elemental interbeing molecular recycling between life forms and modern burial practices. My God, didn't, didn't you? So it was, yeah, it was in your book that if you wanted to do the simple pine box, you had to wrap the body in plastic first. It was the worst. My father had said he wanted just to be, my father was who hated all religion and didn't understand that there was, there were options other than hating all religions. But he just wanted to be put in a pine box in the ground. He loved the earth and he was a doctor. He understood decay and decomposition and death. But then, you know, if you're not prepared for it, they had to wrap the body in plastic before they put, and I begged them not to. And then they had to put the pine box, apparently it's in Massachusetts law, inside a cement sarcophagus in the ground. I think that's everywhere. It's to keep, you know, the casket of the earth from shifting. I know. It's so absurd. It's, there it's a, beyond ridiculous. And, and then it's talking about embalming as well. There's this woman who's, you know, I forget what her name is. You probably know about her where she's creating these, a whole system of composting. She mm-hmm. creates these beehives where you can put the body in, you know, just like you would compost for your garden. Mm-hmm. And that then it, the body will compost in about three months. Wow. I do, the, you know, the Tibetan sky burials. Yeah. Sure you do. If anyone doesn't, it's, you know, because the um, ground in Tibet is, is too solid, frozen to bury people. So they'll leave people out. They'll cut them open like a shamanic person in the community will slice them open and they'll just let the vultures come and take them apart. And, you know, our experience with these deer carcasses, I mean, obviously we can't leave (laughs) bodies lying around, but in that book, Life Everlasting, it is amazing how quickly bodies decompose, even buried underneath the soil. You just immediately become food. You, You become the mother to all these life forms around you and give back for all the life you've taken to sustain yourself during your lifetime. I mean, I walk in, you know, I live in the Catskill Mountains in New York, and I hike in the mountains almost every day. And it's very rare to come upon a corpse. Right. Very rare. Yes. Well, actually, this morning, I drove on one of our country roads here. I haven't driven on it in three days, so I'm not sure when this kill happened or even what kind of animal it was, because the only thing left today on this road were were the intestines. So somehow in the last three days, even it being a somewhat busy country road, the vultures and the ravens and the other scavengers got every bit of it but that. The great cleanup crew. Yeah. Well, we used to, used to know that ISIS, the vultures, were sacred, holy beings, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, can I, your father has just passed and you've cremated him. I cremated my mother. You know, you're often at this moment unprepared for how to navigate all of this, right? And I mean, it seems like the portal, when someone we love passes like that, the portal really opens. Yeah. You know, I always think birth opens the portal and death opens it. And Absolutely. I love it. They, I love that portal space, that liminal I space. I mean, it's, you know, it can be so sad, of course, but it, it's also so beautiful and so human. Were you with your father when he passed? So my sister and I had been with him for four days. He lives about four, um, I mean, six hours away from, we live in different places, but about six hours away each. And we knew he was getting close. It was cancer and it was not pretty. And 
The, on a Sunday morning, November 5th, we were like, yeah, we're going to go home today. I talked to the Airbnb lady and I was like, maybe we could stay one more night. And she's like, yeah, let me know. But we were like, no, he's got like a week or two left, you know, and the hospice nurse and the man who ran his home were like, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like a week or two. And we we're like, well, you know, we'd love to be there. So let us know. And then, of course, of course, the next morning, I just got a call from the man who runs the home and wonderful man named John. And he was like, it's happening. It's happening right now. And he put it on um, FaceTime, which I would not have thought to do. And honestly, when I heard about that happening during COVID, I was like, that's so sad. That's so sad. But I'm so grateful for it because I got to be there with him at the end. And I was saying to him, I mean, I love you, dad. Good job, dad. And I've been saying that out loud to him for the last two weeks. Good job, dad. Good, you know, like it's just like all my resentments and all the. <laughs> things I wanted him to apologize for and acknowledge just dropped. I'm like, you got through your fucking life and it was hard. Good job. And you can go. And I named all his ancestors who he loved. And I know he was excited to be with again. And and he passed a few minutes later. I'm always so struck how often people pass when loved ones are out of the room. Yes. You know, it's private work sometimes. Right. That actually, he was with his mother, my grandma Aini, when she died nine years ago. And afterwards, years later, he told me, he's like, you know, I was with her. I was in the room. I wanted to be there. And then I stepped out to go to the bathroom and she died while I was gone. And he had a lot of guilt about that. And I told him, because I had worked with hospice, I'd volunteered with hospice at one point. I was like, dad, that's actually really normal, you know, and that really brought him comfort. And so that whole story and that conversation are bringing me comfort now too, you know, because I did want to be there, but I, I think it worked out perfectly. What's his name, Amber? Gary. Gary. I feel very woven together with him that he's brought us together. You know, I know he's in that big transition moment of, you know, I always say the great remembering that happens when we die of everything and mm-hmm. that you've already tapped into. and. But I do wonder, I mean, it sounds like somebody, he, he, he was somebody in life who disappointed you and made difficulties for you. Yeah, like your father. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I always say patriarchy doesn't work for the patriarchs very well sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, also people with whom we've had complicated, who we've loved, but who've disappointed us, that can be really hard to sort out those feelings. Mm. One of the things I always, I mean, I try to do in my book with the dead is my father has really made amends to me. Mm -hmm. It's as if, you know, he has shown up from the other side in ways he could never show up when he was alive. Yes. Yes. I was thinking about that. I was saying that phrase to my dad the other day on a walk in the woods too, like making amends. What does making amends mean, dad? Do you owe me something or just really exploring that whole morass? Um, But that reminds me of another quote I wrote down from you. One of the things I just really took from your book was, as I've already said, but I like can't say it enough because you and I both had this experience with our fathers, how quickly things can change once they're on the other side. So you wrote, Forgive me if it took me a while to realize that everything changed when you died. How could I possibly imagine that you, my difficult, stingy father, would on the other side become the most generous and thoughtful of ancestors? How could I imagine how ready and willing the dead are to connect and collaborate with the living? I feel like this is like a revolutionary concept, but that it would not have been to 
our ancestors and people in the past. It, it would not. It was it was the way they lived, and mm -hmm. I and I do believe. I always say before there were gods and goddesses. There were just the living and the dead, always changing places. And what we think are the stories of the gods and goddesses are the stories of the ancestors. Yes, very very old ancestors coming and going. But it is radical for us. And one of the things I will say, you know, my, my husband lost his father last summer. And I did notice with him, it was a very moving and they had done a lot of healing work. He was 91 when he died. But interestingly, he'd been a very complicated step, his stepfather, but mostly his father's whole life, very complicated relationship. I noticed after he died that for the first time, my husband felt safe to be angry at him. Mm. And one of the things I said to him was, it's okay to be angry at him. Like he can handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, he can really handle your rage and let it fly and let him show you that he hears you, understands, and let him step into that space because I have to be honest. I was pretty mad at my father when he died. I mean, not right away, but you know, in the, you know, that opening of his death, I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, so much is healed. And then of course I found out all the awful things I talk about in my book and, you know, a lifetime of resentments emerged. But what was amazing to me to realize was I would get angry at him and he would show up the next day to show me he was there willing to make amends mm. yeah you you really are emphasizing through your own personal stories in the book that when we open up to relationship with the dead they show up for us like they are they are right here and they are listening and oh gosh I mean even for someone as open to those kinds of <laughs> ideas as me it, it it is hard you know growing up in very rational western culture and i just i love and you actually write that at some point like you know the hardest thing for the people i work with around this is to get them to trust their own experiences and trust their own intuition and i yes <laughs> people are always coming to me saying i know this sounds crazy but yeah <laughs> and then they share some extraordinarily beautiful story yeah of connection and intimacy with the other side and I just want to create a culture where we're sharing those stories all the time. I want to grow up. I want to be reborn into a family that's filled with those stories. Yeah. Because I think children, children remember their past lives. They are in communion with the dead frequently. And rather than becoming shut down as we are in Western culture, I think in the world that we're headed into, we're going to need to hit the ground running with this. We're going to need the guidance and the help of everyone we've got on the other side. Right. And yeah, I can just think about how amazing it would be to grow up in a culture like that, where your, your dreams, your synchronicities, your supernatural psychic experiences are, are just normalized. Like, I have a great story. I had this woman who was taking one of my classes with me. It was my birthday. This was my birthday present from the other side this year. And so we're talking about, you know, these matters, right? And she has a little daughter, three-year-old little daughter. And normally, you know, she gets her set up with paints and books when we're having Zoom class together. And this day, her daughter kept interrupting during the Zoom class. 
And she said, I have done a painting for little Gam Gam. And her mother said, who's little Gam Gam? And Gam Gam is the word we use for grandmother in my family. Mm-hmm. Little girl didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Calling me little Gam Gam because my picture was little on the computer screen. <laughs> and this three-year-old little girl holds up a painting of the solar system. But mm-hmm. it's got suns and comets and the rings of Saturn and moons around Jupiter and I'm a mom. I know little kids and I've spent a lot of time with little kids. And I said, wow, that's an accomplished piece of art. Did she copy it out of a book? And her mother said, no, she just draws from her head. Mm -hmm. Well, that's amazing. Does she like outer space? (laughs) And her mother said she wanted to be a comet for Halloween. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's precious words. And Then I went back to teaching the class and a thought kept popping into my head and I've learned to pay attention when the dead are speaking to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all psychic. We just, we just have to learn to pay attention when they're trying to get our attention. And I remembered a book I'd read when I was in fourth grade about a woman astronomer. I think it's the only book about an astronomer I've ever read. It was about, you know, it was some, you know, empower young girls book I'd read about this woman astronomer. (laughs) And I looked at this woman, I said, you know, there's a woman astronomer called Mariah Mitchell, you might want to tell your your daughter about if she's interested in outer space. Because it's always good for little girls to know they can grow up to be astronomers. And her mother said, Oh, that's wonderful. I'll write down the name. And I went back to teaching the class. And the mother interrupted five minutes later and said, my daughter was born on the 200th birthday of Maria Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And then while she was reading the Wikipedia page during class, her daughter looked up and said, oh, there's my telescope. Mm-hmm. And this child has been reborn into a world where her mother can reclaim who she was. She has more than a passing interest in comments. And she has things she wants to do in this life. And it was important for her to make sure that her mother connected with someone who could help her claim that long story. Now, we all have, we don't become who we are from one lifetime, but so many lifetimes of experience. I mean, I know you know this. Well, your book really opened me up to it so much more. Like, I want to believe it, but I'm not sure. And, you know, how can we ever know? Once I am open to it, it just, it gives so much more meaning to my life. All these things fit together and suddenly make sense. And I'm like so excited to keep, you know, following these uh, synchronicities. And yeah, thank you. The long story of the soul is your your phrase, the long story of the soul. So we really are speaking beyond just like the immediate dead who just died and now they're dead forever and you're here. For, it's much more dynamic than that. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I always say we don't have lineages. When I look at the earth, I don't see a lot of straight lines in mm-hmm. nature. I see a lot of root balls. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're pretty tangled and and we can see like the root system of a tree and it's woven together with the roots and the weeds around it. And then it's woven together by the mycelial network and those complex entanglements 
is what our souls are. Sometimes I like, as a child, I love to do embroidery. And I've always was fascinated how, you know, on one side, you would see nothing but a jumble of threads and knots and frayed cutoffs, but then you turn it over and you'd see the big picture. And I think sometimes that the soul is like a thread, you know, and the dead get to see that picture from the other side. Mm-hmm. And they get to see how it's all woven together and how we're all woven together, how we're all connected. That there are no coincidences. They're just extraordinary entanglements. Mm-hmm. And I think we do all feel that as children or, you know, at least at some point in our lives, this feeling of like having walked with a certain soul before or like a, a fadedness that's not, not in a bad way, but, you know, destiny, which are, that word is, um, has to do with the stars, right? Destiny. But destiny almost feels like a destination. And I don't know that there's a destination. Mm-hmm. I think there's a dance. Yes. You know, and I think we have dance partners we remember, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like those great country dances you go to sometimes and you start with one partner and a circle and then the circle breaks up and becomes another circle. And then it, eventually you all find your way back to each other again and again. But we all know that, right? We know that we we meet someone and know we've met them before. We arrive in a place and know we've been there before. Yeah. And one thing I've always thought (laughs) must be true after death is that we we find each other again through like a frequency of love you know towards the end of your book you write love guides us from one lifetime to the next there is nothing lost that cannot be recovered there is no departure that doesn't lead to reunion i mean you're a mother right yeah you'll never stop being a mother to your children thousand lifetimes from now you'll be their mother mm-hmm. and you may not be their biological mother a thousand lifetimes you might be their first grade teacher in that lifetime or you might be you know the person who hits them on the side of the head when they're headed in the wrong direction you know <laughs> who knows but i do believe but the deer carcass that feeds them exactly exactly because what wouldn't we do for them mm-hmm. wouldn't we what wouldn't we do for the ones we love? I mean, I sometimes people say to me, oh, I don't want to be reborn. I'm so done with this life. You know, I just want an extinction, Buddhist nirvana, you know. <laughs> and I understand that feeling that we live in such a traumatized world, that the thought of being reborn into this modern culture of disassociation and disconnection and trauma, who wants to be reborn into that? Not me. Mm. But that's why we have to create a different world because we are going to be reborn into the world we've made. You know, someone asked me why I wrote this book, and, you know, there are many reasons I could give, but the truth is, I hope it finds its way into the hands of my mother and father in my lifetime to come. Mm. My seven year old daughter actually said that to me the other day. She asks, she's a really deep thinker and feeler. And she asks about death a lot. And so I was reading your book and sort of talking about reincarnation without using that word specifically. But I realized that was not an idea that we had talked about before. And she was like, oh, I don't want to come back again. (laughs) 
And she she's actually said something similar before, which is that she doesn't want to live forever. That's like eternity scares her. And I get that because eternity really scared me from a very young age going to Christian Me church. Too. Yes. And I, I and you write in your book, well, I'll, I'll let you speak to the difference between well, the two. The thought of being on a conveyor belt that's going to dump you into heaven in one bin or hell in the other bin, that seems horrible. Mm-hmm. And then to be in either forever. place forever, right? <laughs> like, But what we know about nature and everything in the natural world is it's dynamic. It's always on the move. Everything's always changing. Um, I read this beautiful book about the long story. I recommend if you love life everlasting. It's called Other Lands by Thomas Howe. Do you it's know about it? Itself. I think Sophie maybe put a story up about it. It's, I think I got it from Sophie, but I heard you mention it on the For the Wild podcast recently. It, it's a great book, but it's also, but you know, nature's not nostalgic. It's always making something new. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be awake forever. I love going to sleep. Mm-hmm. I love being. And I like to sleep for a long time and I like to wake up slowly. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, you know, I don't want to live forever. There'll come a moment where it'll be time to go to sleep for a little bit and wake up and try another life. And it's just like, I wouldn't want to keep drawing or coloring on the same piece of paper. I want to, oh, I can make something new. Yeah. And nature, I think, same feeling. I mean, that feels good to me. That feels really good to me. You know, there's periods of rest or darkness. So your husband, Clark Strand, has this beautiful book, Waking Up to the Darkness. Is that the title? Yeah. I love that book. And and you also touch on the same theme in this book. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, too, you and I had really similar experiences. I think the nights, the nights our fathers died, which was an experience of darkness, like blackness. Or maybe it was your mother. So your mother died. Yeah. I, I, I would love to hear about your experience. When my mother died, I came home from the hospital to my brother's house and I was in a bedroom, you know, a guest bedroom and the whole room disappeared mm-hmm. and I was just in the cosmos. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? For me, it was, I was just here in my bed and I don't, I mean, it was black in my room, you know, but I just, I felt, I felt the darkness, like the universal darkness. And I, I saw, felt, experienced my father and my ancestors wrapping this cloak of darkness around me, but it was a cloak of blessings as well. I was like, I just felt I have been anticipating this moment when my dad dies because my maternal grandmother died at 101 earlier this year too. And they were my last two living direct, you know, lineage ancestors. And I had been anticipating feeling totally bereft and like um, adrift at the moment that I became the oldest living ancestor in my lineage at age 42. But it just felt like the exact opposite. They like, they wrapped me in a cloak of blessings and it was total darkness. (laughs) You know, when you think about when we're in our mother's wombs, it's dark. Mm -hmm. Think about that blessed darkness of being inside our mother's bodies, you know, and, and warm and wet and, you know, the, just the heartbeat and the darkness. I mean, you're right. We're wrapped in it at night. And 
I became frightened of the dark as a child. And, you know, as a modern American person, you know, living in cities and as a woman, you become frightened of the dark and what's in the dark. But what we're frightened of in the dark is not the dead. It's the living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the dead are fine. Mm-hmm. Dead are loving. They're our protection. They're that mantle of protection. Yeah. Yeah, I want to uh, finish a thought from earlier too, which was just imagine if we lived in that sort of a culture where all of this was affirmed. I mean, we we know these cultures exist and have existed, and they're healthy cultures, right? <laughs> a culture like ours that denies death at all costs, you know, shoots corpses full of toxic chemicals. That, that's just that is the height of insanity. Of course, and also it treats death as if somehow it's a mistake, yes, a failure, and mm-hmm. and a, like a personal mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like somehow, you know. I mean, what do we think we're gonna like? Like you, you, your grandmother lives to one hundred and one. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> it. We're all gonna die. It's yeah. gonna happen. Every it, it. It's guaranteed. The stars will die. The plants die. The plants and animals do it. I mean, it's, I love my life. I would like to be one of those old grannies. I mean, I dream of being an old granny holding a great grandbaby in my arms. I mean, that's that's the dream. That's right? the dream. Mm-hmm. You know, telling my stories to the grandchildren and, you know, I got a little sweater on and I got the little grandbaby. I'd love that. But as I often say to my children, I don't know the long story in the big picture. And if I check out early, it's because there's something I can do to help you from the other side. You know? I mean, I, I do know because that has been my experience with with my mother's death specifically. She died eight years ago? Yeah, this month. They both died in November. But hers was hard to lose your mom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hers was a car accident. and Oh, Amber. Yeah, and she was my best friend, and she was everyone's best friend. We found out at her funeral when people, my sister and I, didn't even know. We're like, she was my best friend. We were like, wow, you do. <laughs> but that's how wonderful of a person she was. So very different experiences of losing a parent with my mom and my dad. My dad's death was so extended. Basically spent 10 years dying, but really six months since cancer diagnosis. Um, 10 years in like an alcoholic hell. And very have you, able, have you been able to feel your mother since she passed? Have you been able to? Yeah, experience? although I, I would say I've already felt my father more strongly, but it might have just been that I was it was in such shock, in such shock, and did not have <laughs> you know, my mom was so loving and so wonderful. She was like, when I look back on it now, I'm like, she was like an ascended master on earth, and she was not walking around like all spiritual or anything. She just loved everyone, was like the least judgmental person for to everyone, extremely support. She was just pure love. She was pure love. So I don't know, just such a hey, the best as, the best ascended masters are just mothers. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but since Reading your book, I've been talking to her a lot more. You know, you, I love this thing. You talk specifically about, you can ask your ancestors 
for specific things. And you can go to a specific ancestor who maybe struggled with the same thing or maybe mastered the same thing. I got sober from sugar two years ago, and it was a really bad addiction for me. Mm. And, you know, it's an acceptable addiction, but it was a bad addiction. And the person who was my sponsor was my best friend's mom, who died of alcoholism at age 52. Mm. And she was the worst alcoholic I've ever met. You know, people always used to say, oh, she's going to hit bottom. Well, (laughs) everyone else's idea of bottom and her idea of bottom were different. I went to her and I said, you know, you didn't get to meet your grandkids. Mm. Not sober. I've got to get sober. Help me. I prayed to her every morning. She has shown up with such generosity and help and guidance. She shows up in my dreams. I had a dream. I walked early on with my sugar sobriety. I, in my dream, I walk into this wonderful bakery. And she's there and she looks at me and she says, Rita. I say, all right, Rita, I'm out of here. <laughs> my dream. <laughs> Rita. And so, yeah, I think, you know, so someone like your father who struggled with alcoholism, we learned people who've experienced defeat in life often have great wisdom on the other side. Mm. Failure is a great teacher. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting that they use that word because for the last many years of his life, I just felt like he failed. You know, he was a failure. He failed at this life. I don't know. I just don't. That feeling just dropped like the minute he died. Absolutely. I pray about my daughter's love life and I pray to my grandfather, the the wrongly named Valentine. (laughs) He had three marriages. They were all a disaster. (laughs) You know. He couldn't find love. Mm. And I figure all of his failure has taught him something about the importance of love and how to do it right. Yes. I love that. You're praying for your daughter's love life. (laughs) What else is there to pray for? I know. No, I know. My 17-year-old has this boyfriend who I adore, but every time he gets mentioned, my friends and women my age are like, do you like him? And I'm like, I love him. And everyone's like, oh, thank God. To hit your daughters would be so hard. Oh, it would, it would. But, you know, I I pray about, you know, this is great. This is mother magic, right? You want to pray for your children to have erotic joy in grandchildren. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the prayer of every plant, every bird, every animal. Let the world continue. And if we're not, when we align our prayers, I, I mean, I have teams of the dead on my children's love life and on their happiness with work and their homes and, yeah. I begin my day fretting as a mother, worried. Yeah. Uh, this one's car, that one's mold problem in their house or <laughs> whatever's coming up. And, and I assign it to the dead. Mm-hmm. My daughter had a problem with her house. And my husband this morning was remembering an uncle. I n- I've only met him a couple of times. But he was one of those old Arkansas guys who could do anything. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, let's put Jimmy on getting the right person in to fix it. Mm-hmm. Honest. So I, I love, I love playing with the dead. In some ways, I play with the dead like a child playing with a dollhouse again. You know what I mean? Like I get them all together, and I give everybody jobs, and I have my altar is almost like my dollhouse with all their pictures and. Mm-hmm. 
I want to say something about that, but first I, I kind of want to finish up answering your question about, do I feel my mom? So I feel like I felt her like I did in life. I, I feel her love and support all the time, all the time, you know, in the, once I got through the first few days of shock after she died, I was in the most expanded, expansive state of gratitude. I was like floating around just with constant tears in my eyes of like, I can't believe I was born to that woman. I, I thank you to all the mothers of the universe throughout all time. And that state, you know, has remained. I mean, for my mother on the other side, you know, she's so close to me. It's hard to even see her because there's almost no distance. Right. Yeah. You know, yes. she's so available to me. A, a, a psychic friend of mine, she's very good at knowing the moment people are going to pass. That's her which she learned when her own mother was dying. Mm. And she can see the dead showing up to welcome souls home. Mm. And one of the ways she knows that people are about to die is when their mothers begin to show up and hold their bodies again. Mm. And I think one of the things I've realized is there's a moment when I'm going to see my mother take me in her arms again, and that's the moment I'm going to die. And so it will be a sorrow to say goodbye to this life and the people I love and this incarnational experience. But, oh, to be held in my mother's arms again. I was thinking about that just a couple nights ago. I, was, I think it was a guided meditation. And she was like, just find an image of absolute peace for you. And I was like, I'm in my mother's arms. <laughs> and it, oh, I love it was so, so wonderful to be there. I want to tell a story too that's just related to all this and how interconnected we all are. And part of my father's drinking was that he was he was so sensitive. And he had these experiences throughout his life that he, you know, he was a man born in 1950. He was not supposed to have those kind of experiences. Of course, he never talked about them, like your quote I read earlier. You know, we don't we don't share these experiences. But one thing he did share, because he was so close to three of his grandparents, one grandfather died when he was a baby, but in the like mid-80s, his grandfather was dying. We were in Lake Tahoe, where I grew up. His grandfather was in Wasco, California, down in the Central Valley. Like He, he knew it was soon, you know, and he said he was pacing. He was pacing around the house and pacing around the house, feeling this feeling a lot of emotions, right, about this happening to his grandfather, who he loved. And then he walked in the house into his bedroom and sat on the bed and he said he just felt this like whoosh, just something breathed through him and let go. And he noted the clock because my dad was always noting the clock. Like he swears that my sister was born two minutes before her birth certificate says. <laughs> He's like, it was 808, not 810, despite what that birth certificate says. And he noted the clock and he found out later from his aunt who had been there that that was the exact moment his grandfather died. You know. I mean, I know you know this because you're so in communication with the natural world, but we think we've gotten so good at communication, right? With our phones and Zoom and instantaneous, you know, connection with around the world, which is wonderful. It's, it's a lot of fun. But we've lost touch with the ways we used to be able to communicate with each other like that. Right. And I do believe we used to know how to dream together. We used to be able to send messages to each other. You know, one a woman in my class the other night, she she had a dream of an old high school boyfriend coming up behind her and wrapping his arms around her. And she said it was just delicious. And she woke up 
And she thought, oh my God, what's that about? You know, I haven't thought about him in years. And she thought, I need to Google. And he had died two days earlier. Oh, wow. Wow. And he had come to visit her. Yes. Actually, my, who was it? When, okay, so when my dad's mother's sister died, actually the one who had told him what time his grandfather had died, she died. And then my grandmother, her sister, got a phone call the next day from a friend saying, did Jenny pass last night? And she said, yeah, who told you? And she said, Jenny came to me in a dream and said, like, I'm here now. She said, she came to me in a dream from heaven and said, I'm here now. And I mean, these aren't like super dramatic, crazy coincidence, you know, stories. These are just very simple communications between people who love each other across the veil or whatever you'd like to call it. I'd say the dead aren't, you know, sometimes people want proof the dead are real. And they're not going to offer a kind of proof we can write about in a science textbook, right? Right. They're not going to offer us the, the proof that exists for the outside external world, but they will offer us proof in our heart if we're open to it. Mm-hmm. And they really will give us an experience of, of them really being there. You know, for me, I think I knew they were there. I knew they were there. And then I had this moment where I went, oh, they really are there. You know, and then you felt you felt it in your body at that moment. Yeah. And I really do trust it. And I think I think it's a kind of confidence. It's the antidote to fear. And so many people are so frightened in our culture right now of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's plenty to be frightened about. But the antidote to it is that that mantle you described of the dead holding you mm-hmm. is there. Mm-hmm. Every single soul. And this is another main theme of your book is that in these unprecedented chaotic times we need to be calling on folks who have gone through similar not exactly the same but similar circumstances to guide us they'll guide us they'll show us where to step they'll show us what to eat they'll show us how to live they'll show us what to do you know this i read a book with a psychic and she said everyone's psychic just in different ways we all have different kinds of psychic gifts. But imagination is psychism, right? Mm-hmm. That ability to see with the eyes of the dead. And I think right now there's such a failure of imagination. You know, violence is oh, yes. violence is a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. People yes. get violent when they don't, they can't imagine other solutions, other ways, other stories, other ways of being in the world. And I think we need a lot more imagination. Yeah. And not a kind of technological imagination, but an, you know, an empathic imagination about how much time we have and how much love there is access. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of imagination, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but are you so proud of Sophie's new novel that weaves in all this work that you and your husband have done over like I just love knowing the work that you and Clark have done and then seeing Sophie putting it into this imagined novel that just feels so real and is so lush and gorgeous the um the Madonna well, secret I am I, I, there isn't a word I don't know what the word <laughs> I have to make up a word to describe the feeling I have about her <laughs> I, I'm profoundly I am awed and humbled and delighted and thrilled. And I'm also 
I want everyone to read it, The Madonna Secret by Sophie Strand, because it is such, she's a genius storyteller. Yes. And it's a glorious, sexy, Mm -hmm. embodied, fierce retelling of the Gospels. And, you know, it's interesting because I never want to talk about Jesus because he's been so horrifically abused by 2,000 years of Christianity and Western culture. But the Yeshua Sophie imagines is somebody you do want to talk about and you do want to hang around with, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She's a great storyteller. I love, you know, we all work together. We write together. We read our writing to each other every single day. Mm-hmm. One of the delights for me about that book was, um, you know, Sophie's always been a writer. That she came, she came in writing. She was mm-hmm. a storyteller from the get-go. And I was writing down her poems when she was two years old. <laughs> and so, you know, and each, each of my children has different gifts and different talents. And my, my other son is a, is a permaculture farmer. So mm. he works really much right up from the feet up. But it's amazing to watch. I mean, you, you have children to watch them become who they've always been. Mm. You know, you, you hold a baby when that baby's born and you're looking at them and, you know, oh, you're already somebody. You have so many multitudes within you, so many stories within you. And it's wonderful to watch them blossom. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite poems comes from a Japanese poet and teacher. His name was Soen Nakagawa. And he said, all beings are blossoms, blossoming in a blossoming universe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... I guess if I had a word, I love seeing my children blossom. Yeah. It gives yeah. me great joy. Yeah, I, I was telling you before we started recording, um, but then you referenced it earlier, so now I'll explain what you were referencing, that I've always, and you said the same for you, um, identified with mothers, even when I was a very young girl. Like, I think about when I lived in South Lake Tahoe in 1991 and J.C. Dugard was kidnapped and she was my age and she went to my school. And I just so clearly, rem- I did not think like, that could have been me. Oh my God. I only thought about her mom, Terry, and what her mom would have been going through. So that's just kind of a silly example of that. But I just want to, when I'm reading The Madonna Secret, I'm like, Perdita and Clark must just be so proud of her. You know, like when they read that passage, were they just like their hearts were just shiny and then like look what just to see someone that you made and nurtured through the world, like be able to synthesize such giant ideas so beautifully. And the imagination, I want to bring the imagination piece back into it because I feel like it just flowed through her effortlessly. Maybe I'm wrong. But it works really hard. I'm sure. I think the other thing two things I want to say to what you said. One is she'd written three novels before she graduated from high school. Oh, (laughs) she's a, she is a compulsive writer and she Mm -hmm. reads two or three books a day. So she's Mm -hmm. just, she works so hard at it. And you know, when she was writing the Madonna's secret, she was getting up at four o'clock in the morning to write for three hours. It's a lot of words. It's a long book. It's, It's a long book and it's a lot of work. And she cut 400 words from it. So, you know, hard work. But, um, and she rewrote it about four times. Wow. So it was, I mean, I think she made herself available to spirit as she wrote it. 
Right. That's what I mean by effortless. Like she was really tapped into something. Feel that when you read it. But I think I want to go back to you and being a mother, because <laughs> I think if there's a message in Sophie's book and my husband's book about the darkness and my book, it's that all of this finally brings us not to wanting to be enlightened or an ascended master or to get it or have some Kundalini opening. The real wisdom is to remember that we've all been each other's mothers from lifetimes past. And what would it be to remember that and to live with that knowing that we are the mothers of everyone we meet? And what would it be like to live in a world where teenage boys aspired to be mothers? Mm. Really saw themselves as, am I a good mother? <laughs> and what would it be when biological women mothers were surrounded by communities of other mothers there to help them be mothers mm-hmm. and to mother them? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the world I want to be reborn into, and I want to help people remember. Yes. And don't need to say that we're not living in that world and we can very much see the consequences of it. I mean, it, it kind of breaks my heart to hear you say that with, with longing, you know, breaks my heart with longing. You know, we see, we watch these horrific wars and we see people who can't imagine that the bombs they're dropping are falling on their own children. Right. They can't imagine that the soldiers are sending into battle to commit atrocities are their own children who will be traumatized for lifetimes, lifetimes. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to begin to remember that we're each other's mothers. And sometimes that means, you know, giving people a time out. <laughs> <laughs> Some people need to be given a time out for a little while. Um, but yeah, like the plants know this, the animals know this, the stones know this, the earth knows this. What would it be like if, you know, if we could remember this? Mm-hmm. So many, I don't know, so many thoughts, so many, so much longing. I feel like the modern condition is one of longing for that kind of world, right? I wanted to talk about, I guess, devotion before we finish, because, you know, one thing I see within your family is, you know, when I interviewed Sophie, she talked about how every morning she names every species in her immediate ecosystem that she can, and it takes a long time. It takes time. And you have this, I was like, oh, they're a family of (laughs) list makers. (laughs) And, um, you know, they, they, you take, you take seriously the webs in which you're embedded ecologically, ancestrally, and that takes time and that takes dedication and it takes effort and it takes energy. And I think it's something that so many of us would like to sort of skim over. But I also really see you, your family, you all have incredible stories of synchronicity and encounters with animals, flesh and blood animals, and with spirits and beings who come to you. And I really think there's a direct correlation between the devotion and the approach and those experiences that you have that so many people crave, but maybe, you know, aren't putting in the effort really to. I'd like to talk about pleasure. Instead. Oh, that's what, so that's what I was just saying, like effort, but like wooing, 
It's, you know, I was talking about a doll's house and play and pleasure. So my children are grown and I have the great pleasure. My husband um, wakes up early, early in the morning and brings me my coffee in bed and we lie in bed together and we drink coffee and we say our prayers together in bed, drinking our coffee, watching the birds, watching the sun. And it is not effort. It is celebration and pleasure. And it's, it is fretting. I worry about things, but I turn it all over. And we have, you know, beautiful art we have of the, you know, our devotional objects and we get silly and we're, you know, we're all, we're all joke tellers and laughers. So it'd be better to do one minute a day working with your dad out of sheer pleasure than doing something out of duty and obligation. Mm-hmm. And I think if you if we do things out of pleasure and delight, so when my kids were little and I was a, a harried, exhausted mother with little ones working, never any money, <laughs> you know, just you know, pulling my hair out, exhausted. We'd lie in bed at night. We had a family bedroom, so we had two queen mattresses on the floor. We had a sleeping room, mm-hmm. and it was something a friend of mine who's a Maori from New Zealand had done. And I just loved this idea to create a sleeping room. And so we'd all go cuddle. And that means six cats, a dog, children. And we'd turn out the lights and tell stories. Then the kids would pull on my hair. And I would start saying prayers. And they would start saying prayers. And we'd all fall asleep saying, thank you, help us with this. Thank you for this. Help us with that. Thank you for this. Help us with that. And I think devotion comes from that pleasure place of community, holding, delight, turning over our worries and problems, and intimacy. So what I often tell people who want to begin to work with the other side is better to do something for a minute, 30 seconds a day that gives you absolute delight. And you'll enjoy it so much that you'll start to do it for two minutes. You know, and then you'll be doing it for an hour at some point because you love it. And it comes out of play and love. And the dead love us. And they're very funny. And they're very playful. And they can owe their tricksters. And so we can have a lot of fun. I'm willing to look at all the horrors and miseries of the world because I'm having so much fun with the other side. Thank you for the reminders, Perdita, of what I feel like is, I don't, very human, very human, very necessary, very necessary. Necess- yes, necessary is the word I'm going for. Reminders of these necessary relationships that we can cultivate with the dead. It's so, we're just so myopic when we're not taking them into account. If I can't get a human being on the phone and I'm trying to call someone and get a human being, I call in my father's secretary, <laughs> Ruth N- Ruth, get me a human being. You know, you ran a whole office with 20 doctors. You could answer the phone. Get someone there to answer the phone. She always, someone will always instantly pick up. And so Ruth and I share, share a laugh. 
Yeah. You know, and it's also, we can also have fun. Like before we came to meet, I always go to my altar and I do two things. One, I always give my mother who did drink much too much in life and it was problematic, but I always give her the good bourbon before I begin to teach. Mm-hmm. Spirits used to be for calling in the spirits. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times people drink too much because they want to figure out how to manage the liminal and yeah. they don't know how. They haven't been given resources for it. Like I always, you know, my family jokes, like don't ever give me any hallucinogenic mushrooms or anything because my life is hallucinogenic. You're already there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it is true that we can, but so I always give my mother a little bourbon to call her in. And also I spray her favorite perfume mm-hmm. and I just smell her. Mm-hmm. And for my dad, you know, I don't know. He and I just swear to each other. <laughs> That's our love language. <laughs> That's it's interesting because just for years I've been like, I would never put alcohol on my dad's altar. Like, you know, it alcohol ruin. And just a night or two ago, I was like, I'm gonna buy him some whiskey. He was begging for it the last months of his life. The last full sentence he said to us two days before he died was, get me booze please <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going it's time now now that there's not a body that can be further we need, to, we need to pray to these ancestors to help us sober up from civilization mm-hmm. yes i think you use that phrase in your book do you sober up from civilization i yes yes the next book i'm working on is all about that is about how do we sober up uh-huh catastrophe right i mean you know the alcoholics and the drug addicts the canaries and the coal mine but we're all addicted to something uh sugar or shopping or scrolling or control there's a lot of canaries in the coal mine these days (laughs) chronic illness they're all dropping dead (laughs) yeah yeah I could talk to you forever. I'm like, we should probably end, but I just don't want to. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just wishing we could put on a cup of tea and go sit on the couch together. And yeah, yeah, I want to, I want to go. I've never been to New York. Come visit Sophie and me. I would absolutely love to. Love that. Yeah. Okay. I, I do think we've completed everything. I, my sister's coming tomorrow. I can't wait to give her this book. She's another person like my father who really has like that second sight and has had serious psychic experiences and has never had the community of support that she needed around it. Even though me and my mom are always like, that's amazing. Yes. You know, it's not a culture wide support, which would just be so helpful, but I know she's going to really love this book, especially in, in our new grief. Well, I'm really grateful to your father, Gary. I don't know if you'd be willing or comfortable, but if you'd be willing to send me a photo of him, I'd love to put it on my altar and just to, say thank you for bringing us together and connecting us in this moment in this way yeah absolutely yeah thank you and you know the timing around this book i don't even i think i think amazon suggested it to me is what happened really yes i knew i knew you were sophie's mom and i love the cover obviously (laughs) so wonderful uh, english artist oh it's so the violets it's so beautiful and 
just the timing was so perfect. And then I went to message you on Instagram to ask you to be on the podcast. And you had gotten in touch with me many months ago about the book, but the the timing would have been not nearly as significant. You know, it's so interesting. I sold the book because the book arrived on my editor's desk from my agent. And she put the book, the manuscript is a printed out manuscript and proposal. She put it in her bag and she went home to discover that her father had dropped dead. Oh my gosh. And she had to call, you know, call into work. I mean, you've been there when a parent dies unexpectedly. So much to take care of, so much grief to process. Mm. Two weeks later, after this incredibly unexpected ordeal, she sits down to pull this manuscript out of her bag. Mm. And it's about the death of my father. Mm. His name was Ron Connors. And so I, I, I have Ron's picture on my altar as well, just because I feel these fathers. You know, who better to help us sort out these problems of patriarchy than these fa- these poor fathers? Right. Who, like you said, how did you phrase it? We're just as hurt, if not more, by patriarchy than the women. Oh, my father was just a mess of misery and unhappiness. Yeah. Sounds like your father was too. Yes. Yeah, so you, your dad definitely reminded me of mine. And your father's name was Matthew. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to speak his name too, since we've got the other the other dads named. Yeah, Matthew and Gary can have a drink together on the other side. Yeah, I'll put out some whiskey. Triscuits from my father. My father was a cracker eater. Oh my god, mine too. Triscuits. My whole really? Child. Yes. Yep. Every day. <laughs> it's so funny. I know. Triscuits and whiskey and Pepsi. Oh god. I know. <laughs> Well, uh, I always, I always try to say to, uh, you know, my children, I say, you know, just make a really good, strong cup of coffee for me from the other side. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Your altar space is beautiful. I also have begun, um, cause I'm, I'm seeing, you know, some of the iconography behind you, the way of the rose, the book that oh. you and your husband Clark wrote together. And it's so beautiful. And I have no background with the rosary or Catholicism, but I, you know, I was like, Oh, neither I, did we, neither yeah. did we. Yes. I love that. Um, but I was like this, you know, I'm, I'm into this now. I, I would like to try that. And then my seven-year-old brought home from her nature school Basically, a rosary or a mala made of madrone berries. And I was like, hey, Would this works. That's, that's I, I've been wanting to make a, a rosary out of acorns. That's one of the things I'm working on right now. Good mm-hmm. meaning because acorns, the ubiquitous here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Madrone <laughs> right now are all over the ground and they're so beautiful and red and they're really like a perfect consistency for that type of thing, too. Beautiful. That's wonderful. Well, you know, I used to pray the rosary in bed with the kids and they would play with my hair and I would play with the rosary. I mean, because I felt I was a mother. I felt so, you know, my own mother was dead. My grandmothers were dead. I felt so bereft. Yeah. Bereft. Actually, you know, while you're here, I like, how did you make such amazing kids? (laughs) Do you, what are the insider secrets to how you raised Sophie and Jonah? Well, I think you know them, which is outdoors. Mm-hmm. Lots of animals, lots of plants, lots of time out in the woods. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, I know Sophie may have talked about it. You know, we did not know, but she'd experienced horrific violence as a very young child. And 
We didn't know, but there were lots of animals. I was rescuing. I was a wildlife rehabilitator when the kids were little. So when I say there were a lot of animals, I mean, there were possums and raccoons and swans and geese and ducks and coyotes. And, you know, <laughs> and we were feeding little be- beings with eyedroppers and, you know, eggs were hatching. And Yeah, the wildness and life beyond our limited human scope and certainly beyond our screens. And <sighs> now your daughter's 17 and, and you have another child, right? Another daughter who's seven. Oh, seven. Okay. So is your seven-year-old daughter experienced two mothers or? No, the 17-year-old is uninterested. (laughs) Not completely. I mean, she's nice. She's never been mean to her, you know, but it is interesting. We were talking earlier about how we came in feeling very maternal. And my mom told me my sister was born when I was two. She was like, you were a little mommy from day one. But my oldest is like, I just, I just don't have that. Like I, you know, maybe I will someday, but I do not have like the mothering impulse the way that some people do. We also don't know the story. Like I look at my grandmother who had, you know, like 10 pregnancies and six living children and 36 grandchildren. And I think, you know, next life, no children. She said, right. no children. I'm going to be, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Maybe she was my mother's mother's mother who had 17 with right? you know, an abusive alcoholic in the Catholic church and uh, oh. in Canada. Oh yeah. I do have Catholicism in my ancestry. Everybody does. Personal, I know. I know. We're all Marie's to all the women. Every, like 10 generations back, we're all Marie's, which is Mary, which is Miriam, right? We could get. <laughs> which is the ocean. Which is mare of the sea. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, yes. And then, yeah, my seven-year-old daughter is so maternal. She's such a caretaker. She's just very, very sweet, angelic, <laughs> deep thinker and feeler. You know, it's interesting to me. You ask, you know, what we do for our children. And, you know, they both arrived with long stories. And they're very different. Uh-huh. And you know, my daughter arrived, she was talking at eight months and she's writing and she's, you know, reading everything in sight and she never slept. I mean, she never slept. <laughs> Sophie never sleeps. She uh-huh. never stopped. Then she used to go when she was little, her first word, one of her first words was eyes, eyes. She'd go, eyes, look at me. <laughs> and my son, we thought something was the matter with him because he slept. And he laughed (laughs) and he ate and then he slept some more. Mm -hmm. Dream baby. He's a dreamy, earthy, deep plant community. You know, he's very, very connected to the plants and growing things and animals. And, but he's very, he moves very slowly, very quietly. Mm, That's good medicine. Yeah, I miss him. I don't. He doesn't live close enough. Mm. I want to tell you about a dream I had. It's interesting because I've um, hinted at this dream before in this podcast, but don't want to make this podcast like about my, you know, my dreams. But I, I could not stop thinking about this dream, reading your book, and also starting your and Clark's book, The Way of the Rosary, and the reappearance of the Virgin Mary, the Black Madonna, this ultimate mother. You know. And, uh, many names, many different forms. So I had this dream, I think it was 2014. And I had, I had been taking 
a very thoughtful approach. <laughs> As we talked about earlier, I had been really, it was probably, I lived alone with my then nine-year-old daughter, eight or nine, but she was with her dad part of the time. So I had a lot more alone time to like tend my altar and tend my people and invite these experiences in. And I had this dream and I had asked for a dream before I went to sleep that night that I was in a courtyard and it was like an ancient desert type of landscape. Just the feel of it. I just, you know, I knew that's what it was when I woke up at least and thought back on it. And this morning dove flew down onto the table I was sitting at and then it popped down onto like the bench on the other side and got a little bigger. And then it popped down onto the ground on the other side and got even bigger, like almost human size. And I walked around to it and we just were making eye contact. You know, morning doves have those just black eyes, gorgeous eyes. I mean, that, that is emblazoned into my mind, this eye contact I was making with this dove. And she was like kind of trying to communicate with me, but we couldn't quite figure out. And then she extended her wing and I extended my hand and we touched. And at that moment, we understood each other. And then she was suddenly like in this alcove in this ancient desert courtyard. And all at once, like whoosh, like a magician, she became a woman with long black hair, naked woman with long black hair. And then she, and she was, she looked kind of scared. Like she was looking around, like, are they going to find me? And she stepped back into this depression in the stone wall and disappeared. And I looked around at the courtyard and I thought in my dream, I got the dream I wanted. And then I woke up. So reading your book about the Madonna, I'm, I'm, you know, I've always, it was like some sort of ancient desert goddess or mother, it seems to me. And the dove, right, is, is very symbolic of many of the goddesses, women, ancestors from that time. And I don't, I just wanted to share it with you because it feels related to your work around that. Well, I mean, the thing I'm struck by, I'm struck by so much in your dream, so much. And mostly I'm having chills through my whole body as you're talking about this. But Isis was always shown with wings, Mm -hmm. the great mother goddess, right? And same with, you know, Inanna. Inanna was... Some of the really old goddesses. There's a beautiful old Paleolithic goddess figurine known as the Bird Woman. Mm -hmm. And she, with her arms upraised. And it, you know, what does it mean to recognize the birds as our mothers, our mothers as the birds? And the many birds are symbolic of the goddess from the doves who are symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the Rach, and then the mother goose. Mother goose is, you know, I, I said that we had a mother goose who was one of the best mothers of my children. And the bird mother, the bird mothers, we have been birds who come to wrap their wings around us. If you see some of the pictures of medieval Madonnas, she's often like Isis holding out the mantle of her cloak like wings. Mm-hmm. All of the people are gathered under her cloak, like chicks under a mother's, you know, if you ever see those pictures of owls with their mm. wings wrapped around their babies. And it's such a comforting thought to have bird mothers again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also struck that you're that kind of mother, that dark black hair is, you know, mm. you're one of those mothers in the world. Mm. People often ask me how I know she's real. And I say, because I meet her every day. 
I meet her in the trees and the stones and in the faces of mothers I meet all over the world. Mm -hmm. Beautiful dream. Yeah, thank you. It's by far the most significant dream I've ever had. Or, you know, that feeling you wake up and you're like, oh, that was a communication. It feels very old, right? And just totally unlike any other dream I've ever had as well. It, like how it was um, extremely coherent. But, you know, we were in the same place the entire time. There was like a sequence of events that <laughs> kind of made sense. Um, yeah, just very different quality. Um, but I, I appreciate being tuned into this sort of universal or being experienced by many people return of this dark mother goddess that you guys have articulated just just to bring it full circle the dark i always say you know we all write about the dark the dirt and the dead in our family (laughs) they're all kind of the same right that we like that really fertile dirty earthy (laughs) i want to go populate another planet i want to right go underground (laughs) oh this planet is our body yeah yeah the dark, the dirt, and the dead. That's the dark, the dirt, and the dead. That's what we write about. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Pradita, thank you so much. I'm honored to have spoken with you. I'm so grateful for your book, and I'm just a big admirer of you and the life and the family that you've created. Well, it's very similar, Amber, and we'd love, you know, we'd love to travel to visit you. Sophie doesn't travel very well, and with her health issues, which were exploring always yes and i stay pretty close to support her Um, i bet i'll come to you um (laughs) (laughs) you have a home on the east coast whenever you'd like it if you and your daughter and you want to come thank you i've never been on the east coast at all actually really yes (laughs) we live in very beautiful very magical mountains i know i know do you know judith berger the name is really familiar. She's an herbalist who lives somewhere in the Catskills as well. I think Sophie knows her very well. She's an older woman, right? Yeah, she's my favorite herb book. She was a guest on the podcast years ago, Herbal Ritual. Yes, she's a friend of Sophie's and she's come to all of her book events. Oh, yes. she's an incredible writer. Uh-huh. Like you guys. <laughs> Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and always put any relevant links in the show notes, which you can find by just scrolling down from wherever you pushed play on this episode. You can find all past episodes and our handmade herbal medicine at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, St. John's wort, mugwort, yarrow, redwood. We've got body oils, sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, and more. While you're there, be sure to check out our fun quiz, Which Healing Herb is Your Spirit Medicine? It's lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. 
If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your time. There are dozens and dozens of killer bonuses there, ebooks, bonus conversations, uh, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning, coupon codes, behind the scenes stuff. And the best of it is available at the $5 a month level. And it literally makes the show possible. You can also subscribe or follow. Uh, depending on which podcast app you prefer. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. That's M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U. Thank you, my beautiful friend Marie. And thank you for listening. I look forward to next time. <laughs>